And we've got to be authentic like that to really kind of break out of the noise. Welcome to the No Fat Cats podcast, where we help high-performing creative teams get even better. I'm your host, Wesley Dean. On this podcast, we help creatives get better by focusing on three areas. We focus on strategy, execution, and leadership, because everything rises and falls on leadership. Today's podcast is going to focus heavily on strategy with Bart Kaler. Bart Kaler is from Kaler Solutions, and they work primarily with uh, higher education institutions, so he's really in tune with what makes Generation Z tick, how you can get a hold of them, and what they value. He just brings a lot of great ideas to the table with regards to focus, uh, strategy, and what you should be doing if you're trying to reach Generation Z. So uh, without further ado, here's my podcast with him that we recorded in a coffee shop, so you may hear a, few, a little bit of background noise. Here we are on the podcast with Bart Kaler from Kaler Solutions, and we're at the Whale Coffee House in Fishers, Indiana. Welcome, Bart. Hey, thanks, Wesley. Appreciate being here. No, well, absolutely great uh, having you here. I know Bart is an expert when it comes to Generation Z, um, or as my Canadian friends say, Generation Z. <laughs> but uh, and, and why is that? Is because he works primarily works with educational institutions, helping them with recruiting, helping them with you know websites. Why don't we tell us, Bart? What do you? Um, what do you offer and what do you do with sure. when it comes to sure. groups? We do a lot of work uh, in marketing and communications with, uh, like you said, education. We do a lot in higher ed, so colleges and universities. And then we also do a lot independent schools. So it's, it's interesting because, you know, with traditional undergrad in the higher ed space, you are aiming toward that Generation Z. Still focused on millennials if you're looking at adult students. And even at the independent school levels, like if you've got a you know, first grader, mom and dad are probably millennial. So there's an interesting time frame right now with so many different generations. No, absolutely. And, and so when it comes to Generation Z, give a little bit of context. So mm-hmm. people who are going into college now were, don't know a world before 9-11. Right. That most of them were born... 2000, 1999. 1999, somewhere on there. Yeah. And, and don't remember, um, you know, I think 2011, no, 9-11 was... Everyone who was of age can always remember where right. they were during that time. But this is the new generation that, that doesn't know that. Doesn't exactly. Know the world. And what else is different about Generation Z? Well, they've never licked a postage stamp. They've never had a landline phone at home that they can recall. Um, you know, all of my kids, I've got, I've got a 19-year-old who's certainly Generation Z who just started college, all the way down to a 13-year-old. So I've got four kids, and um, it's amazing. They're, they're first and foremost digital natives. They, you know, when you talk about millennials, you talk about they, you know, kind of adapted to digital because that's kind of came on the, on the scene when Generation Z is really the first generation that never knew of anything other than going to Google to ask a question. They never knew that you might have to find answers other than going to YouTube. And so there's just a whole different way, even as I engage with my kids, they're, you know, I'll ask them something or try to, I'm frustrated that I can't find an answer. And they're like, well, did you, did you YouTube? Did you go to YouTube and see a video? I'm like, no. And so they've just got a whole different perspective on the way that they find their information and the way that they consume their information. Okay. And, and how does that impact then when it comes to, to schools and why is it important to, to be in tune to this? Yeah. Well, I think that schools in particular, when you think about colleges and universities, I mean, Things change so quickly. Um, I remember, you know, about 
20 years ago, I did a presentation at a university that was just when Facebook was getting ready to launch from .edu to the public. That was 2000, 2004, 2005. And um, it was interesting because at that time, it was like this whole new, you know, a whole new way of kind of looking at we need to market differently. We, we can't do the things that we've always done. And I think that so many schools are still kind of stuck in that idea that, okay, if we do a view book, if we do a travel piece, if we do phone calls, if we do this, then it's, we're just going to be able to get the same numbers that we always have. But at least from my perspective, Generation Z does not respond the same way. They're not as interested in printed view books. They're not interested in picking up the phone and talking to someone. They're more interested in going out and finding the information that they want or finding a trusted source that they can rely on and then discovering more about that as opposed to being kind of laid out and told what to do. And so I think they value things like authenticity so much more than Generation X's, which I am. Um, you know, we, we tend to be a little bit more trustworthy to say, oh, that brochure looks high quality or that video looks high quality. I think I'm, I'm good with that. Whereas I think Generation Z tends to look beyond the, the front of everything to kind of get to the heart of things. And so I think that's why you hear a lot more about authenticity with Generation Z, that you know, they're, they're more comfortable with something not being perfect but being authentic. And so I think that's one of the things that, especially as creators of content, we need to remember that you know, sometimes the most polished piece is going to be suspicious to Generation Z, whereas if it's a little bit more authentic and a little bit more real, they're going to relate to it better. No, that, that's a very interesting point, especially even as it applies to when it comes to like disaster relief and you know, working with an organization. And they said that the things that were doing the best were the were the, the things that looked like they were shot on a cell phone mm -hmm. and were real, that looked like this is someone on the ground and they're responding to it. And that was the stuff that did the best because right. it looked more authentic. Yeah. And you think about it, I mean, most of Generation Z are content creators themselves. And so they are using their cell phone. They're using their own cameras to generate content that they're sharing on Instagram, on Snapchat, on different you know different social media platforms or they're just texting it or sharing it with their friends in, in a social setting they're using the tools that they have and that is authenticity to them and so you know it's interesting my my kids when they went through eighth grade even my 19 year old this was six or seven years ago he had a project uh, in english composition class that he had to create a blog and make a story of, of a nonprofit that he would want people to support. So he, he did something about rescue dogs. And uh, part of the project was he had to actually go in and create a Weebly site, you know, create the blog, you know, put photos in it, and then print out QR codes and put up around the school to get his friends to be interested in his nonprofit. And so if I, I think about if a seventh or eighth grader has that as a project, he already knows what it takes to do a website, what it takes to do content, what it takes to do you know, photography and things like that. How much more suspicious is he going to be if he sees a school that can't do it well when he's looking at, you know, college? He knows what it takes to do it. And so to see that something's wrong or something's not authentic, I think that it just raises some flags for this generation. So no longer is having a polished brochure, a polished website, that polished evergreen video that's up and is good for five years, no longer is relevant. Not, not to this generation. I mean, they, there might be needs. I mean, you, mom and dad might need to see something like that. Other influencers, youth pastors, you know, especially for faith-based schools might need to see something like that. But when it comes down to it, if you're expecting that same video to reach mom and dad and Generation Z at the same way, no, it's not gonna happen that way. So do you have any recommendations when it comes to how people allocate resources? One of the things I find too, when dealing with content, 
and helping people is it's like all right well who are your audiences and especially within the educational groups there's that very much that well we need to reach the the parent the professor and the school and, and often what that student wants is very different. Right. When you're working with people, how do you recommend having two audiences and reaching out? Do you recommend using different channels? Do you recommend different pieces? What does that look like? Yeah, it, a lot of times it can be a lot of different things. I mean, it's, you certainly need to have a strategy that kind of encompasses all that. You know, and, and having people that can think through that through a persona standpoint to be able to say, okay, this is, a, this is what a parent persona looks like. And even at the parent level, I would say this is what mom looks like. This is what dad looks like. You know, this is what a youth pastor looks like. This is what, you know, a friend looks like, a counselor at school looks like. And this is what the students look like. And even there, you know, you can even get down into levels of the students to say, okay, this is what an athletic student looks like. Here's what a, you know, a honor society student looks like. Um, so there's a lot of different ways. So I think personas is very important. And I also think that just being able to look at it from a perspective to say, what is it that we're really trying to communicate and how are we going to use these different channels, whether it's you know, Facebook for mom and dad, and Instagram for the students or texting for the students. There's a lot of different ways that you can look at that. And so I think especially for Generation Z, personalization is going to be so much more important than it ever has been. A lot of people think, well, I'm using personalized URLs or pearls. Isn't that enough? Well, no, because it's not authentic. Um, I recently came across a new tool called BombBomb. It's a B-O-M-B, B-O-M-B.com. And it's a, it's a video email platform. And, uh, you know, in like, 10 seconds, I can record a video, embed it right into my, um, my email, it creates an animated GIF, and I can send it off and create a 50-second you know, video personalization to, to a prospective client or student or something. That's what it's going to become. It's going to become a lot more of this real easy way to engage with one another through the most human, pos- human way possible. And we've got to be authentic like that to really kind of break out of the noise. Okay. So do you find that authenticity, having personalized attention or content that is personalized is, is much more important than in some ways that polished, I, yes. less personal? Yeah. The more you can be connected with them and be authentic, the value, the production value doesn't have to be as high. Um, I still believe that you need to have you know, good quality, but it doesn't have to be polished, like you've said. And so, yeah, I think that's going to that's gonna score a lot higher than just... Um, you know, the most polished video, the most polished piece of content you could do. Okay. And then you mentioned personas. How, how much do you usually, when working with people, do you get into those different personas and audiences? And, and how does that translate into communication channels? Yeah. Um, a lot of times, especially if we're working on larger, larger projects that are more um, messaging oriented, so we've got to have a clear message that we want to present and how to communicate that message. That's really when we'll get into a lot of the persona studies. And so we'll, we'll kind of look at, you know, whether we're doing enrollment personas or whether we're doing, uh, you know, campaign development personas for giving. We want to be able to understand what is it that that particular person or persona is interested in? What channels are they using? So are they using Facebook? Are they using Pinterest? Are they using, you know, Twitter? What kind of social media channels? What's their preferred way of being communicated with? I mean, are they going to open up a letter that comes from, you know, the United States Postal System? Are they going to reply to a text? Are they going to find a phone call offensive or are they going to find it welcoming? So we have all kinds of channels of communication today. You know, we've got all the ones that we used to have with broadcast and telephone and, and direct mail. But then we have all the new ones with social media, with texting, with you know, email and video email and things like that. And so really those personas help us define you know, who this person is and what their preferences are. And once we understand you know, for that group what their preferences are, we can then start to really customize a, a strategy that will 
play to the strengths of what their communication channels are and then be able to customize the messaging for that. Okay. So in general, what do you find when it comes to, if you were to break it down, <laughs> so let's go across maybe generations. So if we were to pick at a 15-year-old, a 25-year-old, 35- and 45-year-old, across those four different categories, are there any generalizations or obviously people categories are fluid, but how would you describe the differences and um, in terms of what tends to work well, sure. starting with, let's say, the 45-year-old? Yeah, the 45-year-old, I think that they are still highly responsive to email. Um, you know, they typically are Generation Xers, so they, they're kind of that stuck-in-the-middle um, generation where they're still starting to care for mom and dad, but they're still you know, raising their own children. So email and uh, very quick communications to them is, is important. I mean, you don't, you're not going to send them a three-page letter and expect them to read it. I mean, they're in the middle of life. And so as, uh, you need to create your content to be scannable. So a lot of headlines, a lot of bullets, even on printed materials. I, I always stress that on web pages. But for that particular audience, they don't have time to really dig in to read something. They want to have the option to do that, but they don't have the time. So on that particular audience, I think you really want to be able to be crisp and clean and email and um, maybe follow up with a postcard that's just kind of a reminder. But beyond that, you know, texting maybe, but um, they're not going to answer the phone in the evening. They're not going to necessarily read long letters. Uh, don't expect them to go and watch a 20-minute video. So, you know, but then if you move down the channel, the millennials, like you go to a 35-year-old, 30, 30-year-old, uh, you're going to see a little bit more where they might be more active on social media, might be responding more on Facebook. They might also, I mean, they grew up with it, so that's it's a bigger part of their life. I think you're also going to find that they're going to be willing to you know, watch longer videos. They're going to be willing to kind of gather that information. That particular um, group tends to be a little bit more suspicious, and so they want more information. They want proof. They want a lot of information. And so being able to kind of give that to them in different ways that they want, kind of start small but let them go deep if they want to, um, they're going to respond similar to the Generation X but a little bit more skewing toward, toward social media. They're still going to be involved with email. But then as you start getting down to the younger ones, closer to 18, the 15-year-olds, they are not going to be interested in email unless it really stands out. Um, they live in texting, and that's where their life is. They live in social media, that's where their life is. But you really have to have a reason to be in their life. Um, you know, you can't just assume that because I'm a brand, they're going to be paying attention to me. Um, you know, I find that YouTube, they watch more YouTube than anything else. Um, you know, I grew up on, you know, Scooby-Doo and Saturday morning cartoons. These, these kids are watching YouTube all the time. If they have a question, they go to YouTube. And so I think brands and schools especially and, and other places that want to really reach Generation Z, you know, I think YouTube bumper ads is a great place to start that's really being underutilized. A lot of schools and places that are trying to reach Generation Z. I mean, yes, you can skip it in five seconds, but you got five seconds to get their attention. So, you know, being able to be very specific on what um, video channels you're advertising on and then just taking advantage of the fact that there's a lot of celebrities on YouTube, YouTubers that, you know, my generation has no clue who they are, but every student knows who they are and uh, you can really do a lot getting in front of them. And so I, I suggest, you know, really trying to look at those types of ways to get in front of Generation Z and then earn their trust and their permission to then get into their texting and their email and other places. So what does that look like to once to earn their trust and to be able to get, do you have a, a platform or a sales funnel process that involves getting trust to be able to get, do texting? Yeah, I think a lot of times um, I like to use gated content. So if you've got something on YouTube that you're kind of saying, hey, for a faith-based school, you might say, 
you know, what's the biggest question that's on the mind of a of 17, 18-year-old discerning what God's will is for their life? Well, maybe you want to offer a devotional on your website where you say, hey, exchange your email and your telephone number or your name, and we will send you a 30-day texting campaign for you know, scriptures that our professors in our religion department put together, or maybe there's an ebook download that you can do, or maybe mom and dad are interested in a, you know, how to finance a college education, and so you give them an ebook and explain FAFSA and things like that. So I think earning their trust by educating them first and not promoting yourself, but informing them of the, of the questions, you know, giving them answers to the questions that they have, whether or not it's about you, just being helpful is going to be a lot more uh, important than promoting. Okay, so you definitely recommend the gated content lead generators in that yeah. way, where they have to give you your... And so would you push... Tra- traditionally, some of those things would be emails, but would you say for young teens now, it needs to be tied to text messaging? Yeah, I think text messaging is a good way to go because okay. um, they're going to be in that a lot more than their email. They okay. might check email once or twice a week. They're going to be in text messaging daily. So do you, you recommend actually getting... What does that look like in terms of texting content to... Is it in the form of a link, or is it? What does that look like? Usually, it's going to be in the form of a link, um, and especially on a mobile-ready device. I mean, 70 percent of all websites are accessed via mobile devices now. So, you know, your content has to be mobile-ready. But being able to link them something, you know, in texting to a to a piece of content on the line, you could also text them a short video, text them short pieces of imagery that would be content. So, not to kind of think beyond the fact that texting is just words. It could be videos, it could be images, it could be animated GIFs. There's a lot of ways to do that. No, well, I find that particular part about being helpful versus promotional extremely, uh, that's, that's extremely helpful, I think, for, for a lot of audiences. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, the promotional content would be, hey, look at us, this is what we're doing, hey, this is awesome. But you're saying that really, it's helpful content, was actually going to be more, more impactful from yeah. the strategy point yeah. of view. Yeah, I, I believe so, because I think more people... There's so much noise of promotion today. I mean, you can't walk down the street. I think statistics show that's like, you know, we get bombarded by brand messages like a thousand times a day. And so if all I'm doing is promoting my brand, I'm just going to fade back into the noise. But if I'm actually going to be helpful and provide somebody, you know, an answer to a question they're looking for, I mean, we all start to Google if we have a question. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. If we're looking to buy a new refrigerator or if we're trying to find out, you know, information about Avengers Endgame. It doesn't matter. We're all going to Google to look up something. If we can provide answers to those questions in in a very um, painless way, people appreciate that. And if we can earn their trust along the way and show them that we have other answers to some similar questions, then all of a sudden we've earned their trust and perhaps they will start coming back and coming to us for the information that they're seeking on on that particular subject. It, you know, being online, whether you're blogging or creating content, it really gives you the opportunity to become the authority on that subject. And so even I found that even in my own small company, you know, because I've been blogging for four or five years and consistently blogging about higher education marketing, I'm kind of seen as an authority on that now. And there's an example where, you know, there was a book published, a leadership book published a couple of years ago. And, um, on my blog, I had done an infographic about um, about a study that was done by a couple large-name uh, marketers for education. And I was very clear. I said, I didn't do this study. I just found it. I thought I would share it. I put it in an infographic standpoint. Well, because of the techniques I used in blogging, I ranked number one on Google for that keyword. And, you know, the people who paid for the study were like three or four down below. Well, this book 
pulled my blog as the authority. I got footnoted in the back, even though they referenced the study on the other ones, but it started out as Kaler Solutions says. And so I became the authority on that particular subject just because Google said I was the authority. And so I think a lot of times the way that you can position yourselves to be helpful can actually make you the authority on a subject that you might very well not be necessarily the authority, but in the, in the minds of a lot of people, you will become authority enough to be able to get what they need. The one thing that a lot of people out there is they try to promote themselves and, oh, we need a video for this. We need a video that says how right. awesome, but they're not taking the time to actually answer questions unless they're looking for something fun on YouTube. I mean, you go to YouTube often when you have a problem. Right. I mean, obviously people go to entertainment. They want to see what the latest vlog is, but often if you have a problem, it's you go to Google or YouTube to find yeah. it out um, or go to Google and if it's something that can be answered with the YouTube, then Google's best interest is to send you to YouTube. Yeah, I had to, this weekend I had to change the string in my string trimmer and I couldn't remember how to do it and I looked it up on YouTube and it took about three seconds and it was done. Okay, so, so what kind of, is there, do you have any other thoughts on content that pe- to give people ideas for not just, oh, what is it like a student, but how, what are some of those questions that in your case universities could be putting out there to yeah. help people with? I think a lot of times universities have to answer questions. I mean, there's been a lot of studies lately that parents and students, especially in today's age, are really looking at What's the return on my investment? What's the outcomes of, you know, if I'm going to spend, you know, $30,000, $40,000 a year times four, you know, if I'm going to, you know, drop $150,000 for an education, what can I expect to get out of it? You know, and what kind of jobs, what kind of assurance can I get? What is it actually going to do? And so I think answering those types of questions, especially if you're a smaller liberal arts type of college, you've got to be able to explain and show the outcomes of the success of your students, the success of why they're better people when they come out of your school. So those are some of the things you've also got to be able to help them understand what you can do with this particular kind of degree. Um, what it is that you know employers are looking for. I mean, a lot of statistics show that employers prefer to have students who are well-rounded as opposed to very specific in their degree. And so being able to share that kind of content, that kind of information, they might come for one answer to a question that they have, but if you can kind of insert those types of things into the question or into a follow-up nurturing email campaign, you're going to build the trust and you're going to be able to help convince them of why you're the better solution than what they were thinking. Okay, and then even when it comes to framing, you know, in this case, video content, mm-hmm. do you recommend answer, asking that question and making sure it's in the description and in the title? Yeah, you want to make sure that your keywords reflect that question. I mean, it doesn't have to be verbatim of what the question is, but as long as the keywords are in there, it's just like a blog. Uh, you know, the algorithms that Google uses on YouTube and, and regular Google, they're all looking at keywords. And so it's one of the reasons why it's important to have your videos transcribed on YouTube so that you can make sure that all those videos are showing up with the proper keywords because we all start with a a keyword search, you know, either typed or, you know, with voice assistance, we're going to see a lot more of that happening where, hey, Siri, tell me this, or hey, Alexa, tell me this. And so we still need to have access to that, that content that the, the AI can go through and sort through and find the, find the information. And so, you know, Video so, transcribers. That's actually important. good. So, besides the transcriptions for captions, does Google actually search those or do you need to have it in the description? Google actually searches those as well as the, the captions uh-huh, in the video. The oh, captions in the video. I didn't know that. I mean, I'm I, pretty sure they do. I've, I've seen that and, and done a little bit of research on that. But the descriptions, I think, are kind of the first and foremost. First but foremost. then, you know, certainly if you have more keywords in the, yep. in the, 
transcription, you're going to find that. Which, yeah, I mean, I guess I can't imagine Google not searching right. that. But that's actually something that I never would have thought of. I mean, I always encourage people to put captions in because of the fact that, you know, for mobile devices, people right. are often not listening to the videos. But that's actually good to know that, it, that you well, should Well, I mean, you, really can do, you can do the captions on the video, but then Google or have, YouTube have also has the transcription where yep. you can actually go through and transcribe the entire yeah. thing and type that in. And, you know, it takes a little time, but it's obviously worth it. And, you know, most content at least if you're looking to answer the types of questions that the kind of content we're talking about, you know, two to three minutes is probably at tops on some of that type of content. And so being able to transcribe that is not a, it's not going to break the bank. No, no. Yeah. Or can you just upload the the caption file, the SRT file? Probably can. Yeah. You probably can do that. Another good checklist for people who are putting stuff on YouTube is to make sure you're, you're getting those captions, not only for visual purposes, but also to make sure it gets transcribable and people can find it. No, that, that's super helpful. Um, and then, so what about, we haven't really talked about when it comes to, you know, Instagram, Snapchat. Do you have any recommendations there for, or is it, yeah. It's one of those things that, you know, when I, when I talk to schools about social media, it's like, again, you know, be helpful, answer questions, especially with Instagram. You want to really show what life is like so that a student can really see themselves in, in, the, in the picture. Um, you know, a lot of social media, I really, a lot of schools are like, should we be doing Snapchat? And, you know, I've only seen a couple schools do Snapchat really well, um, and they really didn't do it the way that you would think they do. That was more of an educational type of thing. Um, I kind of consider that like a 400-level class. I mean, if you've got everything else solid and you're doing everything else great, go tip your toes in Snapchat. But yeah. until then, you really don't have any business being in there because it's... You know, it's, it's a whole different ballgame. What would you recommend if you were to list terms of priorities for people? What would you list as, if you had to rank priorities for do this first before you do this and this and this, what, what would that checklist look like? I think that uh, first and foremost, make sure that you have really good written content on your website. And I'm, and I'm looking at it from a website point of view. You know, you need to have a blog that is answering the questions that you have. I think once you have that working well, then I think you need to move into video possibly audio and start really creating video channels that are going to be the same type of thing where you are answering those questions. I think once you move into that, I mean, at the same time, you can start, you know, peppering those things into social media, you know, and again, Facebook and Pinterest and, you know, some of the other ones for mom and dad, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, for students, I think you're looking at more of the Instagram um, primarily, possibly looking at texting on some of those things, but really trying to do those things well. And, and kind of go at that level before you get into, I mean, you know, the Snapchats and, and, and chasing the latest technologies. Sometimes it's very tempting, but it's never going to really pay off as much as it can just to do the things that we've talked about already. Do, do those well right. first. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's always that tempting between at what point do you embrace something, jump in, and at what point do you focus your energy on what's going to really work? Right. Um, is that, that balancing act? Right. Do you have any... Any recommendations when it comes to teams? Obviously, you know, Kaler Solutions, you, what, what do you guys help with when it comes to producing some of this content? Sure, sure yeah. It's one thing that's interesting about Kaler Solutions is it's a virtual team, and so I'm really the only employee. But I've got about 30 or 40 folks that I can call upon to do different projects. And so um, I think one of the things that we find the most rewarding is that, you know, we can come alongside and partner with, a, with an organization, whether it's a school or another group, and, and kind of expand their internal team and exponentialize it, you know, and take it out. So whether that's coming in and redoing a website or whether it's, you know, creating strategy or creating communication flows or printed materials, we can come in and do that. And because we've set up such a virtual uh, environment, 
I mean, I've got folks all around the country and some folks international that you know, we utilize technology. So we utilize you know, Zoom and, and Skype and things like that for our uh, meetings. I found that it's extremely important to do video-based meetings. If you're a team that's going to be working with other clients or you're a school that's working with other, other individuals, the more you can do video-based, um, you build a level of trust with video that you just can't do on the phone. Um, and if you can't do it in person, video is the second best way to do it. And so we have found that that's really been very beneficial for us. We utilize collaborative tools online, so we use the Google Suite. We utilize a tool called Teamwork, which is like Basecamp but on steroids. And so, so we have kind of, over the last nine years of doing this, we've kind of tweaked and found all the tools that are really the best tools to use you know, to be in a collaborative environment like this, that we don't have a physical space, we don't have a server, we don't, I mean, everything's in the cloud, we can all access everything, you know, we've got everything from, you know, collaboration tools and, and software and things like that, but it doesn't take that much, There's, it's all out there, it's just a matter of being disciplined to be able to do it well. Do it well. No. Well, that's a really interesting point because I do think that with web and all these tools, I think it, it just it makes a lot more sense for more and more teams to go to go virtual, um, especially in that space. I mean, on my personal end, you know, I've gone through the whole process of you know having a team in house, but then inevitably, what I would find is that there I'd find people who I wanted to work with, but a they didn't want to move to the DC area, or there'd be people who I'd find who would be good fits, but. I mean, at one point I found a person who was a perfect fit, but they were Canadian, so I couldn't bring them down right. and be full time. But then they were, I found they'd be perfect fits for like international trips. Exactly. And so that's why on my end, I've actually been shifting towards having people in, in-house to really having virtual teams. Right. So that way I could really work with whoever I needed well, to. And it's such a gig economy now that everybody's kind of used to that. They know what and understand that. And I think for me, what I found frustrating was that you know, I was a, I'm a designer by background, but I got into business development early in my career. And so when I would, you know, at one point in my career, I was a part owner of an agency that we had about 25 people on staff. And I found it frustrating because my partners would want me to sell what our people could do in the back versus what I knew the client needed. Yeah. And so I always felt hamstrung with the idea that I was selling solutions that we really didn't have the skill set on staff that I knew that we could bring in freelancers and subcontractors to do but you know if you if you have capital you need to use the capital and I wasn't able to use the capital and so I just decided that it was a lot it would make a lot more sense if it was not as capital intensive either from a people standpoint or from a facility standpoint and be able to be nimble and flexible and be able to respond to the market's needs as opposed to just selling what I had to offer. And in this case, it sounds like you have about 30 people you can pull from. Right. And so it sounds like you don't really have a lack of If you need something, you can get it. Yes. It sounds like, you know, and, and that's, and so you don't really have any employees who you have to keep busy, but you have this group that you can pull from whenever right. you need it. I can pull and put together a team of seven, eight people for a very large project, or I can do one or two people for a smaller one. So yeah, it's, it allows a lot of flexibility to really be able to focus on the client. Okay. No, I, I think, and especially there is something unique about you working with creatives in that space right. and that I've found at times that people who I'd find who are really good wanted to continually be producing better stuff and they needed their opportunities on their own to right. kind of go out and produce things just for them right. that I couldn't necessarily provide if they were on staff and pay them to do it. Exactly. Um, but if it was their idea that they wanted to do, you know, they would work long hours as a creative because they were excited about it. Yeah. But as an employer, I couldn't actually pay them to do what they wanted to do. Right. Um, 
but if it's a contractor, then they can happily pursue their own activities when they need to. They can push themselves. Um, but then, and I just pay them for their expertise when right. I need it. Right. Um, and so I think especially within the creatives, it's, it's important. And it works out well because, I mean, as long as you earn respect and everybody has enough communications, you can get it to work. Yeah. Do you have any tips, for, especially for working with creatives that, has, that you've learned over the years or things you'd really recommend? Well, probably what I would recommend that I've learned the most these last eight years is to have some really non-creatives being in charge of the projects and the management of that. Really? Yeah. So I've got, I've got about three people that are on my team that I would not necessarily consider creatives in the traditional sense. I mean, they're very creative in how they execute problems and solutions. But um, you know, they have the gift of administration. They are focused on deadlines, on the details, on all the little nuggets that a lot of times, you know, myself as a creative, I don't always, that's not my strength. And so having somebody that their strength is the details and staying on budget, staying on time, staying on everything, and somebody who's just herding the cats, um, I have found that's probably been the greatest partnerships that I have are those people that are not necessarily the creatives who can run the show that get it done. If you have someone who is a creative managing the project, they, and they're not necessarily looking at the budget, and if they're emotionally invested in right. the work, they're going to want to do as good as they can for that project, right. which you want them to do good, but you also need someone who's checking the pulse on, all right, what was our project budget? Right. When are we going to deliver? When are we going to deliver? Where are we at? No, you can't spend any more hours on right. it. Um, and, and having someone who's separate from yeah. that, that person is, is, the, is the super helpful part. Right. Yeah. So with the virtual, how do you cultivate that, you know, people, that, that synergy, bumping back and forth? Does that look like regular check-in meetings or what does that look, or is it more per project? It's more per project a lot of times. I mean, I've got a core team that we meet with once a week. And um, they're more of my support team. So it's the project managers. It's my virtual assistant. There's about four or five of us that get together on a weekly basis on that. So we, we get together on a, on a video conference call and things like that, work through the job list and things like that. But I think for everybody else, it's just a matter of, you know, staying in contact with them. Um, because we use the collaborative tools, we're in there a lot. And, and uh, you know, whether you're messaging or, or FaceTiming or things like that. But I think it's still, it's still about relationships. I mean, you know, I don't care how streamlined you can be and how virtual you can be. Sometimes I just have to give a call to my creative director in South Carolina just to say, hey, how are things going? You know, I saw that you something happened this weekend with your kids. What's going on? Or It's still about relationships at the end of the day. You know, so whether it's my clients or whether it's my team, just being available to just have a quick conversation is always, is always key. And, and when it comes to pulling the teams in and mixing them in with, for example, in your case, the university's creative team, mm -hmm. how, how does that process look like when it comes to communication? Do you, is there a central node who's that go-to or yeah. do, do the teams merge? We typically try to have one central person on each side that's kind of the conduit. So kind of a one-to-one. -one. So there's one person on our side that's kind of our spokesperson and one person on their side that's their spokesperson. And as long as that channel is, is a straight line and connected, we find that's a lot better than, you know, hey, we've got so-and-so over here talking to this person and somebody over here talking to that person, and all of a sudden it's out of control over budget, okay. don't meet the deadlines. And so having that, you know, everything funneled down to one person on either side just makes it a lot more efficient and a lot more manageable. Okay. And then how receptive are usually teams to saying, yes, we want to kind of outsource, you know, these key areas for a project. Does it usually look like a semester or for a project? It's a lot of times for a project or a lot of times it might be for a year, a retainer type of thing. Okay. So we'll re redo things. I mean, we've got a client right now that, um, you know, they had a, a webmaster who was leaving a young woman and, uh, 
they were like, should we rehire somebody? And so we said, well, why don't we take a look at you know, what we could provide for you? And so they've outsourced that entire department to us. And so we manage that now and check in with the client on a weekly basis and, and kind of work through their needs. And so, uh, you know, you have to build that trust and you have to kind of prove yourself. But I think once you do that and you really become a partner, they just know that you can get it done and you become an extension of their team, which I think is the best place to be. No, yeah, it really is, is the best place to be there. And then, and then how important is leadership to kind of bring everything together? You know, when it comes to setting the pace, when it comes to encouraging, do you have any tips for people who are either just starting off or looking at, at running a creative team? Any big lessons learned or, or mistakes that you went through early on? Probably the biggest lessons learned for me have been to really um, create your team that you trust and that are that they have the same vision that you do. You know, I I worked with some folks who could not get the vision that I wanted my virtual team to act and respond like a traditional agency in the sense that everyone had each other's backs and that we helped each other and we got the work done and that we did what we needed to for the client. Um, You know, I I ran into some problems where some some of my subcontractors felt like uh, they didn't want to take direction from me or they only wanted to do their part. Um, They didn't want to you know, inter- interface with the client if there was a question or, or respond to an email just, you know, out of, a, out of an urgent need. And so, um, you know, finding the right team and the right expectations and casting the vision as a leader to be able to say, at the end of the day, we want to do what's best for the client, you know, at the end of the day, do what's best for the client. And then you and I will work out the details on the back end of if I owe you an extra hour or two of work. But don't let the client suffer because you haven't heard from me on whether I approve that extra hour. And so it's, it's that type of thing where just having the right people that are, are smarter than I am doing the things that they're doing, but also that understand my vision and understand at the end of the day, we want to do what's right on, for the client. And then we'll kind of sort out everything at the back end ourselves. To me, that I wish I would have known that earlier. And I wish I would have made sure that the, my teammates knew that earlier. Do whatever it takes to make the client solve their problems. And right. yeah, we'll sort things out on the back end. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Well, any other last tips and wh- where can people follow up on your blog? It sounds you like You can that. follow up. Yeah. If you go to kaler-solutions.com, uh, I've got a blog and you can certainly subscribe to that. Um, we also have about four or five eBooks available online that you can download everything from redesigning a website to marketing on a shoestring budget. Um, we've got one about hashtags and another one about writing for the web. So a lot of resources up on our website. Um, we publish a blog weekly on uh, marketing. A lot of it is specific to education, but just like this conversation, I think it can apply to a lot of different things. And so uh, you can also find me on Twitter and uh, Twitter mainly and LinkedIn is probably the two social media platforms that I spend the most time in because that's where my clients are. And so, uh, so that's, that's where you can find me. What does it look like to produce a blog on a weekly basis? What is that? Can you run me through all the steps of text, creation, who all is involved with that weekly process? Sure. I've got about uh, four or five people involved in that, and we have been working to kind of hone that for the last five years. But I've got a writer. Uh, My writer is based out of Mexico. He's uh, originally from Cleveland, but uh, through a series of events now lives in Mexico. And so he he will write in Google Docs uh, a draft that... At the beginning of the year, he and I sit down and we write an editorial calendar of 52 weeks to say, here's what we want to talk about each week. And then a couple weeks before he does the blog, he might send me a note and say, hey, can you just you know, put a quick outline, some bullet points of what you want to cover with this? And then he'll do a little research 
and uh, write the first draft. That gets run past um, my internal team of my two project managers and my virtual assistant who, you know, we all proof it for grammatical errors and spelling and things like that. He also gives me three pictures to choose from for the featured image, and so I will go through and choose that and add any content comments in the content. And then once he does that, he'll put it into WordPress um, and then work out. We use a plugin called Yoast, which is a search engine optimization plugin. He'll put the keywords in, uh, you know, tweak everything to kind of get the green lights on that particular plugin that says Google will love our content. And then, um, and then we use, uh, I've got an assistant that she goes then and uh, fills out our co-schedules, uh, social media sharing schedule. And so we've got a recipe that we created a few years ago that has all the hashtags for Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook. And it has all the frequency of how this blog post will be published into social media for the next three months. So it goes to you know, all, the, all the social media pages the first day. It goes to Twitter the second day. It goes to LinkedIn the third day. And so we've got a whole process that it goes through automatically. So once we hit go, it just publishes it. And on what program is that? It's called CoSchedule. CoSchedule, okay. So, and, then, um, and then so we'll get that published. And then on all that's done by Friday, it gets scheduled for Monday morning. It drops at 8 o'clock on Monday morning. All the social media hits on Monday. And then... Tuesday, uh, late morning, our email goes out and we run a MailChimp RSS campaign. So it basically picks up any changes on our blog. It will feature the most recent one and send it out to our email list of 1,200 people. And then later that week, my assistant will then take the blog and will resyndicate it to LinkedIn, a website called Ed Social Media, and Medium.com. And so we actually see more traffic on those three external sites than we do on our own personal blog that just that's kind of our weekly schedule of how we get all our content out no great and, that, and how important is it for having that schedule because with the creative process it's just so important to actually have a process yes so that the, the you don't have to every every week think what are we doing next yeah i mean there was uh, when i first did, did my blog i mean the first blog post i did was basically you know i watched the oscars a few years ago and it was the year that you know ellen degeneres took a selfie with you know all the folks in the audience and I just wrote a blog post the next morning about, hey, you know, treat your school, you know, prospective visit days like the Oscars. And you know, it started getting some traffic. And so I wrote a couple more blog posts and then we got a little bit more specific. And But having the process and just knowing it's going to get done, you know, you can sleep better at night because you don't have to sit yeah. up and say, oh, what am I going to, I have to write tomorrow. What am I going to write about? As the the leader within um, Killer Solutions, what is it for you to set that editorial calendar and know, be able to set the bullet points um, you know, because early on, it really know how to like hashtags, right. and I was just like, "Hey, you, I like what you're doing. Can you do social media for me?" But then, inevitably, what I found is that the messaging didn't quite resonate with what I wanted to be saying. Right. And so, how important is it in that editorial calendar for it to have your fingerprint? It's really important to me. Uh, I'm, I'm very extremely fortunate that Joseph, who's who's my ghostwriter, he's kind of has gotten into my head and has figured out a lot of the way I think. But that's been a four-year relationship. Um, but I think that early on I had to make sure that I was really putting my voice into that draft, you know, saying, Hey, I don't think I want to say it this way. I'd like to say it this way. There's a lot more back and forth early on than there is today, but that editorial calendar, those bullet points, that back and forth in the draft is really where, you know, my voice was able to kind of get injected in. And then how much of the work would you say you're involved very much early on with setting goals, with setting bullet points, but then how they are reach those bullet points. Is that kind of up to them to a certain degree? Yeah. yeah. At this point, it's mainly up to my team. They kind of 
you know, know they'll it. run with it. Yep. And I'm grateful for that. It makes me look good, but it, it, I mean, they're, they're the ones really doing all the work. You know, in my case, producing videos for people is that sometimes they fail to articulate what their goal is right. and what they're hoping to accomplish, but they kind of get stuck in the minutiae of the details right. and they don't allow for that much of that creative freedom. But they would have been much better off articulating their goals, what they want to accomplish early on. Yes. And then say, like, all right. And I like how you said they, they give you three options for photos. And so that way you can still kind of pick and choose right. what that looks like. Yeah. And all that's, I mean, that's, that's where strategy comes in. I mean, it's so critical to have a strategic plan, whether you do it yourself or whether you hire somebody to help you with it. It's so critical to have strategy before you do any project. Okay. So strategy before, before execution. Yes. How much work would you say when you're advising people, how much energy should they put into strategy and then execution? I don't know if I would say a certain percentage. I mean, I think that, you know, 30 to 40% needs to be strategy. I mean, you know, you can, and again, the strategy has to be a lot more personal and it's got to be more thoughtful. I mean, you can find a lot of people to execute, but not as many people can do the strategy. You can truly ask the right questions and get to the heart of what the matter is. It's not your logo here type of thing. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've got to make sure that you know, we're thinking through and asking the right questions and really developing content that's going to meet the needs and speak to our audience. No, thanks so much. And you know, that, that's one of the reasons why I personally had been you know, to do more strategy was because after a while I realized that if people were coming and saying, I need a video, usually they're past that strategy point because right. they're more of, all right, you need, we need a camera person and we need someone to edit. Right. And at that point, you, all, any strategy conversations that needed to happen have either already happened or no one wants to have them. Exactly. Because they, they're there. And often strategy wasn't aligned to central messaging or right. anything like that. Right. Um, and so that's why, you know, on my end, when it comes to podcasts, I've been switching over to, to doing that strategy. I think that's wise. Um, just because a lot of the issues, were, I mean, a lot of them are, people aren't doing that 30% strategy. <laughs> you know, in some cases, I think they're doing that, you know, 5% strategy, <laughs> 90% execution, and then 5% strategy, then 50% execution, and then 45% revision because it yeah. doesn't match yeah. their strategy. And then an extra 10% justification of that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, so. that's what they wanted to do. Yeah. It all sounds good. Well, hey, well, thanks so much, Bart. Um, and I'd make sure we include the links in the footnotes. Any other last tips for people working with creative teams? Can you reach Generation Z? I think just stick with it and um, learn as much as you can and then follow your gut. All right. Well, thanks so much, Todd. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the No Fat Cats podcast, where we help high-performing creative teams get even better. If you like this episode, I'd love for you to share it with someone you know. Uh, if you know anyone who works within marketing, within higher ed, or works a lot with Generation Z, feel free to send this episode to them. I know I got a lot out of my conversation with Bart, as he really is an expert in the field, and I'm sure a lot of other people can learn from it as well. Well, tune in next week as we're going to have Chris McNiven and talk about the importance of leadership, having an aligned message, and as we discuss how communication teams uh, and their role when it comes to amplifying a central message and just how important that is. So join me next week for that conversation. Till then, have a great week.